Welcome to meet the filmmaker, Joshua Oppenheimer and The Act of Killing at the Apple Store Kurfürstendamm in Berlin. And please welcome our guest moderator, Milena Fessmann. Hello, welcome. I'm quite happy that so many people found their way on Christmas shopping Saturday to this event. And I must admit that I've never seen a movie like this before. And before we ask the director on stage, I would like to share the trailer with you. Voila. Please welcome Joshua Oppenheimer. I'm very glad to have you here. I already saw you at the Berlinale about 10 months ago, where you uh, became the, um, the winner of the Panorama Publikums Prize. So, um, and you won a lot of awards recently. Does it, um, did you ever expected that with this kind of movie? No, I, I never imagined that the act of killing could touch people as universally and everywhere in the world to the extent that it has. Um, audiences all over the world have shown this real courage in approaching, in approaching men like the, the char main characters in this film, men like Anwar Congo, who perhaps killed a thousand people, approaching him through my intimacy with him, audiences have been willing to get close to him and see him as a human so that they can start to understand how we human beings do this to each other, the effects of these actions on ourselves, mm. on our societies, on our common humanity. So the response, especially in Indonesia, but around the world has been extraordinary, wonderful. Mm. You just mentioned the word courage, because um, honestly, when I saw the picture, and that's why I said it, I've never seen something like this before. It's a documentary somehow, but it also has feature film elements in there, and it's just, it makes, or it made me sort of speechless after seeing it, and I had to take about, took about three hours before mm. I can really start thinking what, of, of what I've seen mm. there. So tell me something about how, how did you come to do this movie? What is your connection to Indonesia? Well, we, we began making this film in collaboration with a community of survivors of the 1965-66 genocide. We made a film, uh, my collaborator Christine Sin and I made a film together in 2001-2002 where we weren't so much directing the film, we were facilitating plantation workers on a Belgian-owned oil palm plantation as they would document their efforts to, to 
organize a plantation workers union. They desperately needed a union because their parents and grandparents, uh, they, they desperately needed a union, sorry, because the Belgian multinational company was forcing the women workers to spray a herbicide, a weed killer, and it was dissolving their livers and killing them in their 40s. They weren't given any protective clothing. But they were afraid to organize a union because their parents and grandparents had been in a strong plantation workers union until 1965. And just because they were in a union, they were accused of being potential sympathizers with the Communist Party, and they were killed. And the survive their, rel their relatives, their children, their grandparents were afraid this could happen again. After we made that film, they said, come back straight away mm -hmm. and let's make another film together about why we are afraid. That is to say, what is it like for us to live as survivors with the perpetrators all around us and still in power? We came back immediately in early 2003, but word got out that word got out that we were interested in what happened in 1965 and when that happened the army would no longer let the survivors participate in the film okay. and so the, the plantation workers with whom we were living said okay if you cannot film us film our neighbors former death squad leaders who we know who who live all around us who are still in positions of power, they may tell you how they killed our relatives. We didn't know if it was safe to film with the perpetrators, so we approached them very cautiously. But to our astonishment and horror, we found that all of them uh, were open. All of them would immediately open up with boastful, detailed accounts of mass killing, which they would tell often with a smile on their face in front of their wives, their children, even their grandchildren. And in this contrast between survivors who were not allowed to speak and perpetrators who were boastfully telling things far more incriminating than anything the survivors could possibly say, I had this feeling that I'd wandered into Germany 40 years after the Holocaust, only to find the Nazis still in power. And I knew I would spend as many years of my life as it would take to adequately address that situation. Maybe we just make a quick brief to history, because you mentioned Indonesia in 1965, there was a military putching. Yeah. Um, so they killed over a million so-called communists. And they, as it always is, they were not really sort of communists, but ev everyone... Everyone opposed to the new military sort of, regime. Yeah, was sort of taken out, and the, and the history just went on. So nothing ever happened to any of these killers. Well, the killers won and took control of the p country. And normally when we see perpetrators in documentary films, um, they either deny what they've done or they act ashamed about it or apologize for it because they know, because they've already been removed from power. But here, because the perpetrators still are still in power, they're open and they're boastful, but that does not necessarily mean they're proud. And mm -hmm. as after I filmed those first perpetrators in this small village, I showed that material to the few, sorry, to the, to the survivors from that community, those who wanted to see it, and to the broader Indonesian human rights community. Everybody who saw it said, you are onto something terribly important. Keep filming the perpetrators because anybody who sees this, any Indonesian who sees this, and anybody anywhere in the world who sees this will be forced to acknowledge the rotten heart of this regime. Keep filming the perpetrators and make a film about their boasting, about, the, about their victory, about how they've kept the whole society afraid that comes to Indonesia like the child in the emperor's new clothes. And that's, that's what I did. So how did you find the people? Because we saw in the, in the trailer, meet Anwar Congo. So, and he's some, there for a more main character to call it like this, mm. but he's probably the, 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 the one is, who is for me the, the most horrible one in one way. And at the end, the, the only one who really start, starts to rethink. So how, how did you find I him? spent after the survivors and the human rights community said film the perpetrators, I felt entrusted by, by them to do a work of historical and moral importance that they could not do themselves. Mm -hmm. okay. And so I spent two years filming every perpetrator I could find across North Sumatra. No one had ever documented what had happened there, so this was the first investigation into what happened. 
I filmed, starting from this one village, I asked each Death Squad member I filmed to introduce me to any other fellow Death Squad members who were still alive, and I tracked them down. And I found everybody was boastful, everybody was open. I worked my way from plantation to plantation, Death Squad to Death Squad, up the chain of command from the countryside to the city and gradually reached the city of Medan, where we made the act of killing. It's Indonesia's third largest city, the capital of North Sumatra, a city of about five million people. And in Medan, the army, it turned out, had recruited its killers, recruited its death squad leaders from the ranks of street thugs, street gangsters, who called themselves movie theater gangsters. Because in the 60s, they were hanging out in movie theaters, seeing, using, all seeing all these Hollywood films, and running very serious criminal rackets out of the movie theaters, protection racket, rackets, smuggling, uh, people trafficking, prostitution rings, and so forth. Out of the, out of the, they were running these out of the movie theaters, and they were also, as a side, using the movie theaters as a base of operations and as a side business selling movie theater tickets on the black market. And there was a boycott in Indonesia, a broad-based boycott of the most of, uh, across Indonesia against Hollywood movies because the importer, the distributor of Hollywood movies in Indonesia had just been exposed in the mid-early 60s for being a CIA agent involved with a plan to kill the first president of Indonesia. So suddenly Hollywood was seen as a, a cover for killing the president of Indonesia, and so there was a boycott. Now, the movie theater gangsters didn't like this because the, the Hollywood films were the most profitable and most popular, and they loved them. They, they, they had screen idols, as most of us do, and so they developed a quick hatred for the Indonesian left. And so when the army later decided to kill everyone on the left, the movie theater gangsters were perfect candidates for death squad members because they had a proven capacity for violence. They were gangsters. Some of them were hitmen killing people even before the killings, including Anwar. And they had a love, uh, sorry, and they hated the, Ameri the, the Indonesian left already because of this boycott. And so it, as it turned out that they recruited their killers from the ranks of these movie theaters and every death squad movie theater gangsters, and every death squad was operating out of a different movie theater. And it turned out they, when I met Anwar, I started to I lingered on him, not because of that, but because somehow his pain was close to the surface. Mm -hmm. And even when he dances the cha-cha-cha, as we saw a glimpse of in the trailer there, um, he, he, he's doing something utterly grotesque, obviously a symptom of his victory. Um, obviously a symptom of the fact that they've never been removed from power to dance where they've killed people. An SS officer would not do that because the SS officer's been forced to admit it was wrong in losing World War II. Um, Anwar's obviously, it's this grotesque image of impunity or their vic the victory of the perpetrators. And yet his pain is already close to the surface. He says he's a good yeah, dancer because he's drinking and taking drugs mm -hmm. to forget what he's done. And I, I started to recognize that perhaps this boastfulness is in fact, that I've seen, spent two years documenting at that point, perhaps this boast, boastfulness is not a sign of pride, but the opposite, a defensive effort to run away from the, what they know to be true, namely that they've done a terrible wrong. And so I lingered on him and started to show him the material we'd shoot together. And he would watch it and propose new scenes. And I wondered if he would recognize the meaning of what he's done in the mirror of the footage. And indeed, I think he does. A very early scene is I show him the very first reenactment he does on the roof, uh, where he shows how he killed people with wire. I show it to him. And he looks very disturbed. I'm sure he's disturbed about what, by what he did. Yeah. But he dares not say so because to say so would be to admit that he did wrong. And so instead he proposes a change of costumes, a change of uh, act, better acting, and essentially to start stylizing the reenactments to make them quote-unquote better. That is to say, to make them in the style of the Hollywood, of movies, the Hollywood movies that, yeah. he, that mm -hmm. they loved. And it turns out gradually that he used Hollywood movies. He used his the experience of watching movies, the movie theater was located directly across the street from the office where he was killing people. He used the intoxication of cinematic identification to distance himself yeah. from killing while he was killing. That is to say, the act of killing for Anwar was always an act, and I spent five years 
unpacking that and unpacking what it's meant. Maybe we see Anwar because we have a little clip and so that you can all see what he's actually talking about. So please. Mungkin ya banyak antunya. Karena di sini tuh banyak manusia yang yang dihabisi, yang mati enggak wajar resiko. Yang mati yang tidak wajar. Datang sini sehat. Sampai di sini dipukulin. Mati. Kalau dulu kita main pukul, pertama itu datang kita main pukul, itu kan darah banyak. Di sini kan Di sini kan darah. Di sini kan darah banyak ini kan. <tuh> Jadi karena telur banyak darah itu kan bersihnya kan bau, ya kan. Jadi cara cara untuk jangan keluar darah itu inilah pakai sistem ini, ya. Saya peragakan boleh kan, boleh ya. Nah, itu dua aja sini lah, mereng sana ini. Beginilah caranya supaya jangan darah itu telur banyak, tahu kan? Jadi saya menghilangkan itu, saya usahakan dengan musik enak, saya bisa nari, iya kan? Bisa happy. Sedikit alkohol, ya kan? Sedikit marijuana, sedikit inex, apa namanya estesi, sudah siap minum fly, kita pun happy tu, caca. So, um, as long as the movie goes, you sort of challenge them to reenact their murderers, their their killings. And the longer the movie goes, the more, okay, because because you you made it so. But um, they are going very much into this making a real movie. So they hire people, they set up decorations, they sort of do like um, paint each other. So, at at how did it come? Because it 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 started like shooting these kind of scenes, and it becomes. The more absurd it, the longer it goes, the more absurd it becomes. It becomes because it's it's really they're really shooting a movie. Well, they're shooting really scenes Or for scenes. the act of killing, and they know that. Um, first, I would just say that scene on the roof that we've just watched was the very first day I met Anwar. Okay. And in a way, it was a typical first shoot with a perpetrator. This spontaneous demonstration, this need to show what happened, slipping into the role of the victim. I don't know if you noticed when he's dancing there on the roof, he has a length of wire around mm -hmm. his own neck, because just before dancing and talking about how he wants to forget all of it, he said, "Now I must show you how the victims looked when they died." Um, and I think that we can see that he says he's trying to forget what he did by drinking and taking drugs and going out dancing. He's, his pain is already there. I showed the way, it, evol the way it, it, it grew to these ever more surreal, ever more grotesque uh, dramatizations was ever more absurd dramatizations was organic and much as you see in the film, I started and it all, it was a very simple method. We would shoot one scene I would screen it back for Anwar. He would respond emotionally and then propose the next scene in response to the previous scene. So when I filmed him dancing, I was so astonished. How could he be dancing? I knew it was a terribly important moment because it was a manifestation of the fact that no one's ever forced him to admit this was wrong. And I could see he was in pain because he just said so. And I, could, I was thinking, will he, he's, obviously in denial of the moral meaning of what he's done. He's admitting the facts, but he's denying the meaning of those facts. And so I wondered if I show him this footage, will he recognize the meaning of what he's done in the mirror of the footage? I show it to him, 
and he looks so upset. He looks very disturbed. And most viewers think at that point he's about to say, what are you, I'm not going to make this film anymore. But he doesn't. Instead, he says, I look like I'm dressed for a picnic. I should change my costume. I should, change, I should dye, dye my, my hair. hair black. And I don't think that's because, in a sense, he's denying to himself and to me why he's upset watching it. He's trying to pretend that all that's wrong with this scene that we've just watched is that it's not realistic enough or it's not a good enough movie scene. So he proposes an embellishment, a new, to, to, to improve it. And that's how, the, and then we shot the next scene and he watched it and was always also disturbed, but then would propose a new improvement, a new improvement. Finally, he comes to play his own victim in a scene that's very stylized as a film noir gangster scene. But on the other hand, it's very, very real. And he experiences real trauma playing the victim. In response to that scene, he proposed this grotesque musical number at a waterfall in which I think to wash away the trauma that he felt playing the victim. I agreed to, and he, it's, a, it's a scene where he imagines that he's been sent to heaven. Um, he's died and gone to heaven, and in heaven he meets his own victims, and the victims thank him for killing them and sending them to heaven. This was an absolutely grotesque idea. It's at the climax of the film. It was a very... I, oh, I was so angry. I didn't want to shoot that scene. I thought, how could you... I, thought you, I was so disappointed with him. How could you, after playing the victim, now want to do that? And I agreed to do it because I knew that if we shot that scene, it would be it would embody the perpetrator's victory and the rotten heart of the whole regime that they've built. So I knew it would be useful to the film that the survivors and the human rights community asked me to make, but I didn't, but I was horrified that Anwar still wanted to do that. But I think that, I think what I didn't understand then, but I do understand now, is that this need to glorify the need to celebrate, the desire to create that musical number, this rede fake redemption, and his guilt, his remorse, these are two sides of the same coin. Mm. He's desperately trying to run away even while making that scene, and when he watches that scene, and that's the real climax of the film, he says, it's so beautiful, but it's so powerful, but he says, now I need to see the scene where I play the victim, because it's not good enough. He's trying, it's not... It doesn't, he knows it's a lie, and he needs somehow, he's doing this film to somehow deal with and run away from his pain at the same time. And, it, and he knows the, the waterfall, that these grotesque glorifications are lies. Yeah, maybe we could see the, the grotesque sort of musical style scenes at the waterfall. Yeah. Malam minggu, ayo pergi. Kebioskopan Aduh emas sakitnya nonton dua-duaan kayak nona dan tuan di gedongan mau beli minuman kantong kosong gelandangan maluh ame tunangan kebingungan Absurd, as you said. Um, the, the guy in pink is Hermann Koto. Hmm. Um, he's another sort of, to use the word, main character of the movie. Um, he's, and that was another thing which really sort of shocked me, because he's, the, the, he's probably not the leader, but he, he has a very, very high position in this Pancasila. Pancasila youth. He's a local leader and a okay, protege of Anwar. Which is... It's a paramilitary youth organization. It's a little bit like what maybe Hitler Youth would have become if the Nazis had never lost. So they're lost. quite big, and they're tolerated. They're just everywhere, and they control the country. That's the impression I got. The, in fact, Pancasila Youth is one of many, it's one of the largest, but one of okay. many paramilitary organizations that has, that's part, you could say it's an armed paramilitary wing of the state, not armed with heavy weapons, but they are, they are, 
um, they, they go and they do violence on behalf of the state or companies that hire okay. them. So they, there was recently, there were large labor protests in Jakarta, the largest since 1998, since the fall of Suharto. And um, there were tens of thousands of sweatshop workers striking and marching in the streets of Jakarta. And Pancasila Youth was there on the front lines, hired by the sweatshops to hack at the striking workers with machetes. Um, Herman is a low, is nationally a low-ranking leader, but locally he's a pretty well-known guy in North Sumatra. He is a protege of Anwar's. He was too young to have been involved with the killings in 1965. He was only 10. He's looked up to Anwar, and Anwar cast him, or involved him at every step of the way, along the way in making the movie. Very strange figure, because we can see it, you must imagine, we, we, we follow him a very long time in front of these youth organizations in the market where he's going around getting money from the Chinese traders to, to organize a meeting and he's just asking for the money and they just have to pay and it's, it's such a strange feeling of society one gets listening, uh, watching this movie because for us, coming from a democratic country, it's just like, oh my God, what's going on there? Yeah, um, the one of, there, there's, a, there's an extraordinary scene where Hermann invites us to see how he makes a living and he takes us around the marketplace and we see that the, Chi that the ethnic Chinese who were extorted, uh, who were forced to pay, buy their lives, pay, they weren't killed the same way that poor, they, they, they're a trader class, they're a little bit like, they're seen a little bit like you could say their position in Indonesia and the anti-Chinese rhetoric against them is similar to the anti-Semitic rhetoric against the Jews in, in, in uh, Nazi times here in Germany, they um, are seen as a kind of foreign, were seen as a kind of foreign element in Indonesia. And they were, they were forced to, those who had enough money to do so were forced to pay to, in order to survive. And then when they couldn't pay anymore, then they would be killed. And the Chinese remain afraid, remain threatened, remain vulnerable. And so Chinese shopkeepers who are very poor indeed in, a, in, in you know, city markets, Panchasili Youth goes around and collects money from them and they have to pay or else they'll be beaten up. So it's the ongoing legacy of the terror from 1965 from the genocide mm -hmm. still alive today in the society. The scene we just saw where they're at this fish is in fact not the scene that I was talking about. I was talking about a musical number at a waterfall where they yeah, sing, where, he gets, the, where yeah. he gets this medal. But this scene is interesting because for me, th th there was another musical number that they shot based on one of Anwar's favorite songs, Peggy Lee's Is That All There Is. Um, it's a song about disappointment. We looked for a location together, me and Anwar, for, for that scene. We drove on this mountain road and came across this four-story concrete goldfish Anwar loved it and said, let's shoot the scene here. This is fantastic. It's so sad because it's so, it's so disappointing. It was once beautiful, now it's rotting away. It was a seafood restaurant that closed oh. down in the, 19, in the Asian economic crisis of 1997. We decided, he, it, we, he felt it embodied the feeling of disappointment that he's had, that he never became as powerful as his fellow death squad veterans. Um, and it was perfect for the song. We shot the scene there. We didn't use the music, that musical number. Instead, there were these moments of pure beauty and poetry that for me embodied the heart of what this film is about. How we human beings get lost in our fantasies and tumble unwittingly towards the edge of the abyss. And so I, I knew that I could either use the musical number or I could use these poetic moments and I knew I couldn't do both. And, okay. since, and so I knew I, I had no choice but to use the mom, these poetic moments from the making of the scene, those scenes. And I used them to mark chapters in the film. Um, and they're, 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 they're very, when you, you spoke earlier about how you talked, mentioned earlier that the film's not quite a documentary. It's a nonfiction film. It's a documentary of the imagination. But in the last act or second half of the film, it ceases to be a film about men making fiction scenes and becomes a kind Absolutely. of surreal fever dream where the boundaries between their, the scenes they're making and the film we're watching melt away into one kind of apocalyptic vision of what happens when we human beings build our normality on the basis of terror and lies. And these scenes at the fish that we just watched are so important in achieving that that synthesis where the film becomes 
pure delirium. You just mentioned the horror you sometimes had watching this. How could you stand that for such a long time? Because it's, it's, it's sort of like, it must drive, it's, it's schizophrenic somehow, because you see something, you know something, and then you see these people acting and being enthusiastic about it. And on the other hand, you also, as you said, see the, you see beneath the surface that's not, that they don't really, are really into it. And you see, as you said, mentioned with Anwar, there is something underneath the surface. Well, I think, I knew that, as, you know, film is not a good medium for words. It's a good medium for subtext. It's a great silences, pauses, doubt. It's a great medium when people don't believe the words they're saying. And this is a film about a man who doesn't believe the words he's saying and the evolution of that doubt. And that doubt would be written all over his face and in his body language in between takes, in between moments of when he's sort of when he's between thoughts when he's between moments of performance and it was those moments that I had to watch for most and I think seeing that is what tempered my feelings of disgust um, I, I also knew that I couldn't I had to make this film I to understand how human beings do this to each other I could not allow myself the comforting luxury of lying to myself and yeah. saying, this man has done something monstrous, and so he is a monster. That's why I was asking. No, he's yeah. a human. Mm -hmm. And if I'm making a film about human be a human and how a human being has done this and how we mm -hmm. human beings live with this, I must allow, I knew I had to become close to him, and that meant I should not hide from him yeah. what's happening in me as I go through this process. And so one of the things that was, th so I often didn't. So when you ask this question, how did I, hide it, how did I feel not being able to show that? I did show it, and it was difficult. So there's a scene in the longer uh, director's cut of the film where Anwar reenacts how he killed a child by butchering a teddy bear. And Hermann, it kind of starts as a game, but Hermann starts playing the mother to this teddy bear and desperately trying to beg Anwar not to kill her child. And Anwar butchers this teddy bear, cuts it apart, rips it apart. And as I was filming it, I was never further than I, from him, than I, never farther from him than I am from you now. I was filming and I started to cry. Tears were coming down my cheeks and I don't think I realized it quite until I stopped Anwar because there was something wrong with a light or a microphone, I don't remember. And Anwar noticed it and said, Josh, you're crying, are you okay? And I said, I don't know, maybe not, but let's keep going. And somehow for me, in my, in my memory of the process, that scene was the beginning. I had nightmares that night, and those nightmares were terrible, and they continued for eight months of creating really wretched insomnia for me. And I got through it because my crew, my Indonesian crew, who all remain anonymous for their safety at the end of the film, the credits roll and the mm -hmm. screen fills with anonymous. The whole crew have, has to be anonymous. They've given eight years of their lives to make a film risking their safety, knowing they couldn't put their names on it. These people were the most supportive, wonderful, loving, caring people I've worked with. They lit this ever and ever known, perhaps, they lit what was a very dark journey with care and laughter and friendship, and that's how I got through it. But it was not easy. And that intimacy with Anwar is precisely what makes this a painful film for everybody anywhere in the world. So it's up to you now. If there are any questions, um, over there, yeah, please. Yeah. I wanted to ask about the idea of, of, uh, of the gangster, which is like a theme throughout the film. It's a word that comes up over and over again in the context of, of, uh, of Anwar originally being like, you know, basically a scalper of tickets, but also doing other things. And, and then there's a point in the film in which the, the vice president is, is addressing the Pancasia organization, and actually talks about what a gangster is, and somebody who works out within the establishment actually isn't a gangster. Um, I'm wondering about what that word really means, what they mean when they say it. If it's uh, if it's a translation of a word that has a more nuanced meaning in their culture, um, because mm. for North American, it's a it's a pretty old school term. You don't hear the word gangster very often anymore. You know, you talk about organized crime, even we don't talk about people in organized crime as gangsters anymore. And I'm just wondering about that word and, 
and that theme in the film, and, and if you could say a little bit more about that. Sure, um, that's a great question. The, the word that they're using in Indonesian is preman, which comes from the Dutch and means free men, as they say again and again in the film. And in fact, free men was the working title of the movie. It only, we only changed it to the act of killing just before we, just as we finished it. And um, in fact, the history of preman in Indonesia goes back to the Dutch colonial times where the Dutch would use a layer of sort of outsiders, people on the outside of the social weave to do their dirty work, to be their hitmen, their thugs, and to uh, be kind of the, yeah, do the dirty work of the regime, be a kind of parallel power structure which allowed the colonial regime to get away with all sorts of violence that was illegal even under the draconian colonial legal system. And that system of, and, and, of, and they were called free men because they were free of the normal social ties. That system under, of, of using preman went through a kind of renaissance under the military dictatorship from 1965 onward, onwards where you can see the military coup of 1965 as a kind of counter-revolution, re-establishing a kind of colonial regime, but this time on behalf of Indonesian, the Indonesian army, and above all, West foreign multinational corporations and army-owned and army-affiliated conglomerates which swooped in and had basically a colonial, exploitative colonial relationship to, to the country. The, these uh, corporations and the government used Preman again, just as the Dutch had, to do their dirty work. Um, the term can mean anything from a street thug, an unemployed tough on the street, to the boss of a huge organized crime syndicate, um, the boss of uh, someone like the paramilitary leader Yapto Suryo Sumarno, who you see in the film. Um, all of those could be preman, so it can mean anyone from a street tough to a mafia boss. The reason we chose gangster as opposed to thug is thug sort of doesn't suggest the high-ranking mafia, mafia boss. And, uh, and gangsters seem to encompass the whole spectrum. And because in North Sumatra in particular, the preman, the gangsters, were hanging out in movie theaters and had this love affair with Hollywood movies, they would also speak of themselves as often preman and gangster, you incorporating the word into Indonesian, in the same sentence. And so it seemed like that was both the translation that you, know, you could probably find on Google Translate, and it embodies a whole spectrum of power, uh, of, of, of rank and power, and is close to these particular preman's heart because it comes from, uh, because of their love of gangster films. And uh, finally, I would just say that this accident of etymology, that the word for thug or gangster comes from free men, has, has been used as a euphemism by the regime to justify the existence of this whole, uh, of, of this whole sort of unofficial violent wing of the state that does the dirty work of, of the government and of, of powerful companies. One more question. Okay. I was wondering, um, because there are scenes where, where, where Aman is like, at the end, where he's almost like pretending, or I felt like that, when he's like on the roof again and he's vomiting or, or he can't. But I had like throughout the movie the feeling that he tries more and more to start out acting, like acting out, actually I feel guilty. And I think that's why it's so amazing documentary, because you as an audience, you never know what to think of this guy. And uh, I found it quite, yeah, I was still disturbed afterwards because I, I, I was wondering what is, yeah, what's going on in this person and is he using this docu documentary also as a platform to, to pretend? Because there are the scenes where he gets his grandchildren and shows them all these things they've done and he's obviously very proud of himself. So I'm not sure what to make of all that, which doesn't mean it's any of your fault, but I was just wondering, how does he, you know, how did he react to all this reaction on this movie? Because obviously his name is now out, and people all over the world uh, have seen him in 
this very complex way. So how does he feel about this? Well, I think there's, there's a few interesting questions in, in what you just asked. Um, first of all, I'm quite sure that at the end of the movie, when Anwar goes back to the roof where we saw him, which is, was the very first day I filmed him, five years later when we went back there, I'm quite sure that he's trying to do sincerely what I asked him to do, which is to walk me through the space and say, this happened here, this is where we did this, this is where we did that. Because the first time I filmed him, I didn't yet really know what happened there. It was the first day I met him. Um, and I think suddenly, I'm quite certain that he's caught unawares, totally off guard, by some physical reaction that his body is having, where he starts to dry heave. I had the desire in that moment to put down my camera, rush over to him, and in the um, foolish, the, the, the foolish optimism that we Americans are famous for, put my arm on him and say, it's going to be okay. And I realized in that moment, no, it's not okay, and this is what it looks like when it's really not okay. So I don't see him as acting at the end, but I think we should, I think one reason the viewers, some viewers, I think a minority, but some viewers of the film have that sense that what if it is acting? It's because the film approaches documentary in such a different way from how most documentaries work. I think most documentaries claim that they're filming using the camera as a kind of transparent window onto reality. Um, whereas in fact, every time we film anybody, we are creating reality with the people we film. And they're always pretending at first. They're pretending to be the person they wish they were. And that is an opportunity to see something very important. How does this person want to be seen? And when you're in a country where per perpetrators have killed hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people, and have won, and are boasting, the question of how the perpetrators want to be seen is the most important question you can ask. So in, how do they want to be seen? How do they see themselves? What image of themselves are they enforcing on the rest of society? What are the consequences of that lie? Because it is a, a moral lie, a profound moral lie, to present a perpetrator of genocide as a hero. So of course I started with this premise, I said, Act, okay, you've participated in one of the biggest killings in human history. I could be that open with them because they were that open with me. I want to know what it means to you and to your society. You want to show me what you've done. So show me what you've done in whatever way you wish. I will film the process, but I will, I will film your reenactments, but I will also film you and your friends talking about what you want to show, what you don't want to show, and combine these things to create a documentary of the imagination that shows what this means to you, but also how you want to be seen and how you really see yourself. So that means I started with giving them the space to pretend and tried to show that it was pretend. Now, if you recognize that, that in fact, that's how all documentary works, that all documentary, documentary is never a window onto a pre-existing reality. It's always a series of occasions that we create in collaboration with the people we're filming. We're always creating reality, and our job is to create that reality which is most insightful to the most important questions we have to answer. If we start from that recognition, it's not hard to understand what happens at the end. The end is an occasion that I created with Anwar, in which something was able to happen that wouldn't have happened otherwise. But because we feel that it's, an, we, you as a viewer have felt that each scene is an occasion that would not have happened if he wasn't being filmed, maybe there's a doubt as to, is it all pretend? Is it all acting? But I'm certain it's not at the end. His reaction to the film has been really interesting and, and important to me. The film has transformed the way Indonesia the Indonesian media has talked about its past. It's opened a space for Indonesians to talk about and the, and, the, to, and the rest of the world to acknowledge what happened and how the government has lied about it and how those lies have enabled a whole system of corruption and gangsterism and impunity. Um, Anwar, despite that, and despite becoming notorious in Indonesia, has been I think he, he, when he saw the film, he was very moved by it. He sat in silence at the end of the film. He was crying. He eventually went to the bathroom, came back, pulled himself together, came back and said, Josh, this film shows what it is like to be me. And 
Then he continued, I'm relieved to have finally been able to show what these events mean and not just what I did. All my life I've been encouraged to boast about what we've done. Now I'm able to show what it means. And it's interesting, here we are in Germany. I imagine if the Nazis had won, even if the official history might not talk about the final solution, you can imagine that the aging SS officers would have been allowed to go back to their uh, communities now free of Jews and encouraged or allowed to boast about what they'd done so that they would be always and forever feared proxies of the state. And that's what the Indonesian perpetrators have been all over the country. And Anwar had the chance to do more than boast in this film, but actually to explore what these things have meant and to expose, therefore, in a way that's undeniable by the, Indo by the perpetrators, by the army, by the Indonesian government, to expose what these things have meant for the whole society. Okay, one more question, please, with a short answer. <laughs> well, uh, first of all, uh, Joshua, uh, congratulations. This is a masterpiece that you have done. Um, I, I had uh, two questions, quick questions. Uh, one of them, uh, I don't know if uh, it has already been released in uh, Indonesia, and if you think uh, they are going to allow this film to be released there. And what do you think is going to, I mean, for me it's clear that it's going to be part of the uh, social therapy, you know, that we are involved in, the people that we do films, no? And uh, another thing is, uh, another question is about, um, you know, I'm very surprised how the, the main character didn't really, um, uh, in a moment, uh, realize that this is going to, ruin the image that he's trying to uh, project on of himself and if that didn't um, uh, he didn't react against you or willing to um, you know uh, run away from this project or whatever you know mm -hmm. that's uh, for me very curious how how could you keep on with this until the end with him yeah i'll, I'll take your questions in reverse order um Anwar, the, of co the characters, of course, do realize what the film will do. There's a very, very important scene in the film where Adi, the other Death Squad member in the film, Anwar's fellow Death Squad member, realizes exactly what the film will do, that the film will turn the history, the official history on its head. It will un make, undermine the entire official history and ch turn, change one by 180 degrees how Indonesia is talking about its past. Um, that's exactly what the film has done. I can come to how that's happened in a moment. That was your first question. But they, they, he, they do realize it. And Adi warns Anwar in that scene, and everybody, stop making this film. It will make us look bad. It, Anwar continues, despite that warning, and despite repeated warnings from Adi, because he's actually, I don't think, interested in trying to make himself look good. Anwar's trying to deal with his pain. He's trying to deal with his nightmares, which have been haunting him and tormenting him ever since the killings. He's not trying to glorify what he's done, or it turns out that the glorification of what he's done and the remorse, as I said earlier, are two sides of the same coin. So he continues, and the younger thugs all continue too, because the basis of their power as gangsters and as thugs is being feared. And so showing what they've done, making themselves look bad, is not necessarily in the short term at least counterproductive to them. It could in the long term lead to a political movement against gangsterism, premanism, and thuggery in Indonesia. I hope it will. But in the short term, being feared, looking frightening, is what they need, need to do in order to go around the marketplaces and extort ethnic Chinese shopkeepers, for example. Um, so they continue because actually the participants are not particularly interested in looking good. Now, our whole strategy for releasing the film in Indonesia has been to avoid the film being banned, and it has not been banned. Now, the reason for that, we knew that if, we, the reason for that is if it were banned, it would be a crime to show the film at all. 
And if it's a crime to show the film, that's an excuse for Pancasila youth or the other paramilitaries or the army in Indonesia to physically attack screenings or meetings like this. And we didn't want that to happen. So to avoid that, we knew we had to build up very high level cultural, political and media support for the film before we started screening it. A year ago, we held closed screenings almost every week at the National Human Rights Commission in Jakarta for Indonesia's leading news editors, uh, filmmakers, celebrities, artists, intellectuals, and survivors groups. Everybody who saw the film said this is so important. Everyone in Indonesia must see it as quickly as possible. They then held closed screenings starting on International Human Rights Day last year. There were 50 closed screenings averaging in 200 people each in 30 cities. Um, closed because we didn't, we thought it was, was less, they were, closed screenings were less likely to provoke a ban. As of the summer, we were at 1,100 screenings in 118 cities. Almost all of those screenings were public. And on the 30th of September, the anniversary of the start of the atrocities, we made the film available for free download for anybody logging on to activekilling.com in Indonesia. The media's response has been the most important because the media has basically, in, what the editor of Indonesia's leading news publication called me after watching the film and said, Josh, there was a time before the act of killing, now there's a time after the act of killing. I've been censoring stories about the genocide ever since I've been in this job. I'm not going to do it anymore because your film shows me that I do not want to grow old as a perpetrator. And so starting with this magazine, this, mag this guy's magazine published a special double edition um, packed with 75 pages of boastful testimony of perpetrators like Anwar, showing that the act of killing is a repeatable experiment, could have been made anywhere in Indonesia, that there's 10,000 perpetrators like Anwar perhaps around the country, that the problems of corruption and so on are systemic. And another 25 pages in this magazine about the movie this was the first time, this broke the silence in the mainstream Indonesian media about the genocide. The rest of the media followed suit, opening a space for, for survivors groups, for the human rights community to start finally talking with an, an, uh, a, a new frankness, a new openness, and a new fearlessness about the country's most painful and difficult problems. So the film has come to Indonesia like the child in the emperor's new clothes. There's not really much more to say from my side. <laughs> Besides, if you haven't seen the movie yet, do please and tell everyone you know to do so. Thank you very much, Joshua Oppenheimer, for this, it's hard to say, amazing is the, probably the wrong word, this very hard, intense and very, very good documentary. Thank you very much for Thank coming. Thank you so much. <laughs>